Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Daily Planet Productions podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and this is my corporate shill partner, Scott Daly. Happy to be here, Matt. Shilling for my corporate? That's right. <laughs> Guys, I honestly didn't get that joke when Matt wrote it down, because I had totally forgotten that there's an interaction between Capricorn and Vista where they call him corporate shill. Um, it's my job to to read this book and know things, and I didn't remember a thing about a, a chapter that I read four times. Yeah, I mean, to so, be fair, she doesn't call him a corporate shill. She just calls him a shill, and you're supposed to infer that they had an inside joke about this. So, Oh, yeah, that's why. It's, so yeah. it's really, it's just your fault. Yeah, or, <laughs> or you're not inferring hard enough. <laughs> okay. Um, as you said, this is the podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wildbo's world of literal flying kicks kamikaze cameras and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial this week we are finally into arc six proper with what we are calling part one ignoring the fact that we covered a chapter in arc six last last week uh but here we're covering chapter 6.2 and 6.3 and uh there's a lot of really interesting stuff that goes on here matt where we're moving into victoria's uh second stage the phase two of her plan and all the good and bad things that result from from that um, a lot to talk about, I think. Yeah, I think the the particular you know salient thing about these two chapters taken together is this quote unquote paradigm shift that she experiences, where she goes from seeing certain elements of the other side to actually being part of her team. You know, she kind of accepts that she's going to be working with these guys and uh, gets her head around it, and it's very interesting to see. Yeah, and if you take in chapter one of this arc and include the fact that she was kind of uh, unintentionally teamed up with imp to help take down some capes that that's been a theme of all the chapters so far this this kind of forced into a situation where she has to uh, come together with all these people that she considered her enemies before and um, it's pretty cool yeah particularly the undersiders and we kind of made the point last week that that it's it's really only her bias against them that we that we know causes her to think of them as villains like we we know a very little about them that actually makes them villains anymore in, in the current sense of how things work um and she's maybe sort of coming around to that yeah no i agree with that absolutely cool all right um so in terms of announcements we are going to be dropping or perhaps have already dropped depending on uh, how things pan out <laughs> a a little little teaser for you for for a, a side project that's going to be related to this podcast. Um, Scott, do you want to you want to reveal what that is? Sure. Um, we've talked. I think it was since I think it was since December, Matt. Since we mm -hmm. were wrapping up Worm, we've talked about we wanted to play Weaver Dice and we wanted to record ourselves playing Weaver Dice and share it with you guys. And we are finally uh, four and a half months later ready to do that and ready to start releasing that to you guys. So uh, I do like Matt said, I don't know when it's going to be dropping exactly, but sometime within the next couple of days, we're going to be dropping a teaser. Um, so if you, if you are listening to this and you are not subscribed to the podcast, do that because that's where the teaser is going to be dropped. Um, and it'll be probably be what you said, like 10 minutes long. That's just kind of setting up uh, the characters that we're playing and the, the um, scenario a little yeah. bit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so look forward to that. 
So community spotlight, where we read what people wrote from last week's thread. And first, we're going to talk about the discussion question. Uh, The discussion question for last week was, what's your favorite short piece of prose from this week's reading and why? And then we kind of loosened that up and just said, what's your favorite piece of prose from... Um, So people picked some some pretty wide... um, wide variety of, of, of pieces. So for example, uh, Regvlas called all the way back to that scene where we, the reader first become aware of the wretch and, you know, Victoria is, is standing next to the window and pulls up her, her force field at the time. He's not even calling it the wretch and it, 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 it creates a, an impression on the window. I'm not going to read the whole section because it's, it's a few, it's, it's a paragraph long or, or, or so, but, um, it, uh, I agree. This is one of my favorite pieces of writing. Uh, Regvlas comments that he thinks it's it's one of Wildbo's favorites too. Um, I, I think I think I heard something about how um, this this scene sort of was an inspiration to to Wildbo in terms of in terms of uh, conceptualizing Victoria's character, um, at least in this in this uh, you know book. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah. it's very uh, evocative. All right. Um, the next one was from Thunderfulness, um, and their favorite quote uh, was from, I think it was from one of this week's re- readings, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe it was last week's when when Narwhal is surfing on a crystal <laughs> and mm-hmm. beating the crap out of a fallen. Uh, this was a really good passage, and, and Thunderfulness said, Narwhal has got to be my favorite side character, owing that she was the head of my city's protectorate. She's a badass with crazy versatile power. Her reputation as a big-name cape is well-earned, and this quote gives me an awesome mental image. And I agree with that. When I was uh, doing my my live tweet of the chapter, Narwhal riding and surfing on a force field jumped out at me as this really, just really just cool moment. So that's a pretty good, pretty good selection. Yeah, yeah, I like I like that a lot too. Very very visual, kind of gives you a, a, again, like like you said, a clear visual image. Stuck in Reddit Factory talks uh, specifically about this this scene from this week's reading where Kenzie finds where Mama Mathers is because one of her cameras is freaking out, and and the reason they pull out this section is it's several characters talking in a row. First, first um, Kenzie explains what's happening with her cameras, then. Then it goes, uh, freaking house, Veta asked. Literal ghosts in the machine freaking, I asked. Yes, yes, exactly. I've never heard that term before, but it fits exactly. How has a tinker never heard? Chris started. Don't look at it. Don't dig into it. Don't dig into the code. I talked over him. Um, and, and so, like, it's, it, they point out that this is cool because every character involved stays perfectly in character, in character and reacts exactly how you would expect given what we know of the character. Um, and then they go into more detail. Kenzie is is talking the most, slightly over-explaining and overstepping boundaries. Um, Chris's reaction is borderline non-friendly and, and needling, um, while also showing off that he knows terms and words, which is something that we've pointed out before. Sveta um, could be read as, as tactical or, or concern for Kenzie's well-being, which is consistent. And both of Victoria's lines interrupt conversational tangents and hit on tactical points and basically exhibit leadership in a direct way. Um, so, like this is this is great. This is the kind of stuff that I love. Um, as someone who attempts writing from time to time, 
just like capturing one character voice is hard enough. Doing a scene like this where people are talking over each other and still remaining so in character that you can tell who's speaking without even reading their, you know, their byline um, is is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Um, we basically don't have to talk about this, this uh, part of the the chapter anymore because it's it's done. It's done yeah. here. Yeah, let's skip over that when we get there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, next, we have Peta Enigma, who um, pulls out Snag's death, I guess, the Snag's final scene of uh, the end of arc five, and just says, if there's a hell, that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and that's that's a very interesting look. I, it, is it interesting? Like. We, we mostly think of the idea when we look at when we look at, at the idea of an afterlife. Um, in general, we we generally want to think of the positive side of it, like, but but there is a pretty negative connotation of this idea that um, he was slipping into dreams of a different sort. And I mean, you could argue that those dreams are more positive, or you could or you could see the negative in that, right? So it could be a hellish kind of post life dream, or it it could it could be peaceful. Um, we had the the one guy who felt like as he was dying, or he remember the stepping on the edge of that volcano, who seemed to think that he would be connected to everything and saw it as this positive experience. But it yeah. could be negative. Yeah, you know, it, it it reminds me of Hamlet. Actually, it never occurred to me until now. But the whole the soliloquy that that you know ends with what, in what what dreams may come, basically. The idea yeah. of dreams being the things that happen to you after you die and that potentially being a bad thing to be avoided, actually. Just this idea of, of that that being dreams of a different sort. My brain kind of bridged those two things. Yeah. Um, yeah, it seems like it's definitely not going to be anything like what a human would want out of an afterlife. I, I think that's probably safe to say. I think you're, I think you're probably right. <laughs> yeah. So general comments from this week. Uh, five six seven discussed how well Snag's name fits with what we know of his full story. They point out before his trigger, his life was snagged by his dead brother. He was trapped in the past, living an unsustainable life to feel close to his brother. After his shop was burned down, he was caught in a worse snag: the need for revenge. He also becomes a snag to Rain, forcing Rain to be constantly caught on the consequences of Rain's past actions, unable to move forward. Yeah, I thought that was a really cool thing. We never actually played the name game with snag. And I didn't realize that until uh, I read this comment and was like, Oh yeah, that's important. Yeah. I was like my, to the degree that I thought about it, my assessment was much more literal, like the scene where he busts through a wall and snags Victoria. Yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking. But yeah, yeah it's definitely more complicated than that. Cause it always is. Absolutely. And, and probably arrogant adds on to that by pointing out that snags tinker power also seems to fit perfectly with the ownership of his store before the explosion. He literally creates and uses emotionally charged objects when he fights, which yeah. was something that had never occurred to me and is really, really cool. Yeah, I think I, I literally copied that out of the Reddit thread and just sent it to you as an instant message just because yeah, I did. thought that was a, a great line. Yeah, you, you put no comment on it. You just copy pasted <laughs> and just I was like, yep, and then we didn't even need to say anything else. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was fun. Hey, Matt. Oh. Yes. Did you know that the dogs pointing at things is just a normal thing that dogs do? 
Um, There's like a whole breed, and they're called pointers. I knew that there was a breed called pointers, but I thought that was just one of those things, you know? I thought that, I thought their noses were just really pointy. I didn't think they just literally pointed at things. I thought it was something they could be trained to do, but I didn't realize it was instinctive. And And then that begs the question, when they say instinctive, do they mean that only that breed of dog can do that? Or did I, don't, it, like, I don't know. Can you breed that complex of a behavior into an animal? I don't know. This is this podcast is now about dog breeding. We've we've and got behavioral dogs. genetics. Okay. Um here here here's the thing though. Okay. I don't know anything about dogs besides my specific dog. So I think we should just talk about Ward. Oh. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, moving on into 6.2. Uh, I was trying to convey a lot of disappointment in my voice there. <laughs> you didn't you did not pull it off. Okay. <laughs> So, Victoria looks over the assembled high-tier parahumans. In contrast, their status with their current predicament, crouched in the mud, covering their ears to obscure Mama Mather's voice. Nearby, Rachel howls, coasting her dogs to do the same in order to drown out the voice. Yeah, so there's a couple different things I think are fun to pull out of this chapter opening. The first is that most direct one that you've handed to. Look at all these super powerful, super influential people, completely cowed, by uh, Mama's return to the battlefield. Strong veterans of, of gold mourning and endbringer fights, and we're all here in the mud, defeated, covering our ears, and like no one knows what to do at this point. It, it, it's a pretty great way to establish the immediacy of the situation at hand, right? Yeah. But the other part of, uh, that I like about this is Victoria like consciously pointing out now villain and hero sat together, crouching and kneeling on wet grass and in mud, hands over their ears, expressions grim. So we're seeing, not only are we seeing hero and villain work together, but we're seeing Victoria conscious of hero and villain work together. And I think the funny thing about this is to us, the readers, this situation isn't that unusual, right? We mm-hmm. saw hero and villain side by side over and over again back in Worm. Uh, one of the biggest themes of the story was about this this desire of Taylor to get people to put aside their disagreements and petty differences to work towards a common good. It's like what she was all about. And of course she, she made it happen by controlling them in a monstrous act of, of mass body control. Anyway, um, <laughs> I think, I think that the cool, the cool thing here though, is this moment isn't significant to us, the reader, but it is to our point of view character. Um, and, and that reminds us that a lot of this chapter serves to make strides in Victoria's ongoing realization that to win this war or hell to survive this war means embracing those shades of gray in the people you're you're on the field with, you're down in the mud with. And I I don't think it's unintentional that we start this chapter with Victoria observing that both these heroes and villains are together in the mud and then end with Victoria deciding to get Tattletale's help, to send a text message that loops Tattletale into this whole thing. Yeah, there's also a, none of this, these, none of these flashes of melancholy that Victoria has been having. Um, I don't remember when the last one was exactly, but it seems like during this phase of the battle, essentially ever since the big uh, uh, speedrunner betrayal, she's been more mission-oriented, and there hasn't really been the space to feel that that melancholy. And 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 it's just been, you know, doing, acting, helping mm-hmm. people, solving problems. And she's sort of in her element here. Whether yeah. that's a good thing or a bad thing, uh, I think remains to be seen. 
Yeah, I mean, she's she's definitely always been the type of person that dives into her work, right? And I mean, if if she's able to to push away those those melancholy thoughts and feelings while um, getting to do some good and hopefully saving people's lives, then um, in the short term, that's progress. We'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll see what that looks like in the long term for her. But um, yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to rag on her here. This is, this is making steps. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Also, uh, Rachel making her dogs howl to defeat mama's voice is the greatest thing ever. Yes, it is. We I can't I can't leave this section without at least saying that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was really fun. So Rain communicates to the others, giving the scoop on Mama's powers, uh, as well as the powers of Bonnet and Coronzon, two other high-tier Mathers capes. And, and he explains, you know, he, he basically, via text, explains what Mama's power actually is. Yeah, if you see Mama, you will start to see things. If you hear, start to hear things, etc. for touch, thinker senses. She can see, hear, thinker through these things. And now I'm kind of curious what happens if you, like, taste taste mama mathers what, what would that look know. like i think you know <laughs> uh I, I, did, that, did no one else think that is that just is that just me <laughs> i'm sure someone did scott but uh not me <laughs> it, it, it so so this has been implied a few times actually that she can think her through things so, yeah. so does that mean does that does that mean not only does she like like if you use your thinker power to to get a read on her can she just mess you up now or can she mess you up and also use your thinker power yeah that's an interesting wrinkle that i hadn't thought of um we haven't seen i I don't know if we've seen her do that specifically but i i think that's the implication here is she she can see here if she can see and hear through you then she can think her through you that's the that's how that word's being used there so yeah yeah implication damn scary Mm mm-hmm so uh, there is this beat here before we move on where, where Rain is explaining the Mathers clan to Victoria and, and she mentions specifically that the leadership wears all white. And then we hit this beat like a few times with Victoria like making sure that she understands very clearly that both Bamet and Coranzone will be wearing white. Am I wrong in thinking that this is that I got this I got this very clear like this is a setup vibe from this that like we're making sure to drill down and you understand that white is an important color for this group. These characters are wearing white. Uh, maybe this will pay off in some way in the future. I, I got the setup in the sense of like we're mentioning these two guys' names because I'm sure we're going to run into them. That was that was my take. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and 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 yeah, I mean like the the wearing white thing. I'm sure that'll come into play. Yeah. So yeah, Victoria briefly thinks about how it would be a nice day for a walk in the rain, and then shortly after that, thinks about how something it is to be around the undersiders to be around rachel specifically and not to have to worry about uh fighting her yeah we get another one of those classic victoria trails off trail offs you know that Mm -hmm. she does a lot um she says i really didn't like rachel but but she actually finishes the thought here um she Mm -hmm. trails off and then finishes it and calls it a paradigm shift which is i mean that's like you hinted at the beginning that's a pretty big deal that's it's a very strong wording for what this is that um a a fundamental change in in tactics a fundamental change in how you approach the situation a fundamental change in in possibly your way of thinking and that's a that's a big deal for victoria yeah i i I usually don't speculate about like what is shard interference versus what is a person's psychology because i kind of think that those are the same 
thing on some level, um, or at least you can consider them the same thing and usually not lose much. Um, but I do wonder if like the fact that she has this pleasant moment of thinking about going for a walk in the rain is like some kind of positive feedback that she's getting from her shower. Like it reminds me of clock blocker feeling like this is what he's supposed to be doing. Or maybe it was, yeah, it was clock blocker when he's having what was ultimately a pointless skirmish with the travelers um, it, it's like, it's like she's having this nice feeling in a totally inappropriate context because she's, you know, fighting and in the thick of it. Yeah. I like that. That's a, that's very interesting. And that makes me kind of go back to that feeling of melancholy and maybe, um, maybe that feeling of melancholy was created because she was like a, a shard influenced thing because she was kind of holding back and not going full ham with her mm. powers that the shard was creating this, Hey, this isn't, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing with me. Um, that, that might be, that might be too much of a stretch, but I like that line of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we can kind of make it, we can kind of twist it into working whether or not you consider it to be directly the shard. Cause it's like, she has to work so much harder when she's trying to be the warrior month and so much natural, so much more natural for her when she's, given a little bit of uh leeway to herself yeah yeah um and that's why like i go back and forth on this because i I think it's it's really fun to play the is this shard doing it game Mm -hmm. but i do worry that you start doing that too much and you're kind of missing out on the importance of of character beats and character decisions and 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 i actually like the idea of we can call this stuff out, but let's link them together, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say if if it is a shard doing something, the shard is is so ingrained in your personality and connected to your your worst fears and your the worst events of your life that we can say that they can be both. It's not mutually exclusive. It can yeah. be a shard motivated thing that also says something about a person's psychology and character. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. So I, I wanted to talk really quickly about the beat with the the dog charging Mm -hmm. um because i found this really interesting and and it's funny we have this this moment where victoria calls it a paradigm shift where she realizes that um i don't have to worry about this person anymore like there's dogs howling and like there's giant monsters around here and they're not gonna hurt me and then immediately a dog comes barreling out of the trees and charges right towards her Uh, vista sees this and goes like oh shit and basically makes a a land treadmill for it to be stuck on so it can't charge her and then we realized very quickly that the dog was just like going hunting and just jumps over them and goes somewhere else and was not attacking them. And both of them kind of overreacted a little bit. Um, so so as much as she's like seeing Rachel in a new light, uh, old habits die hard. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I made too much of this. I think I assumed the same thing you assumed that like they saw a scary looking dog running at them and they both went into a defensive posture and they don't think of these as dogs you know which is kind of how we do like we yeah we're so we're so used to the dogs we realize they're just dogs and uh if they're if they're running pell-mell for someone then it's decent odds that they're just gonna like lick them or something unless they've been told to attack yeah that's true in fact it it took me a couple times reading it before i really drill down that that was happening because at first I thought like maybe the dog was under control of mama Mathers, you know, or or something Mm -hmm. else was happening. Um, but I, looking back on reading it and Rachel is only yelling at Vista. She's not like, she's not like redirecting the dog or anything. She's just like yelling at Vista, like, Hey, stop it. The dog Mm -hmm. is, is doing something for me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah, Victoria then gains some altitude and she finds one dog alone facing off against a biker. 
Despite her injury, uh, the gunshot wound from last last chapter, Victoria closes with this biker, uh, perhaps em- employing her old mantra. She kind of thinks about her 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 old um, kind of mentality from before, not the warrior monk, uh, and she beats this biker pretty overwhelmingly, leaving her with cracked ribs. Yeah, so. We've tossed away the 75% rule, um, which I think most everyone agreed was probably an overly limited rule set that didn't actually work in any real combat situation. Um, so, But mm-hmm. we've tossed that away. We've tossed away the warrior monk, and we're referring to that old mantra from before, um, which, yeah, like I, I actually went digging to see like uh, if if this was explicitly referenced before. And I think it just, we just had like references to, you know, extreme both psychological and physical domination yeah, to like control people. Just, just basically overwhelming them. It, it, yeah, overwhelming, stunning, awing, basically kind of relying on her power set to do that, yeah. Yeah, but this is really interesting, though, because we see throughout this fight that really she's just kicking the crap out of this cape. But mm-hmm. the whole time she's doing it, she's keeping up her hero game, too. Like, she she picks her up basically and then drops her, mm-hmm. but she flies after her as she's falling just like to make sure like she's probably going to catch herself on the way down. But just in case she doesn't, I'm there to swoop in and make sure she doesn't just n- slam into the ground. So uh, yeah, I mean like she's kind of abandoned this warrior monk, uh, attitude and is, is being much more forceful and violent with these capes she's fighting, but she's still at the, at her core, like a hero. So she's not going to just, She's she's gonna hurt people if necessary, but she doesn't she she's not gonna kill anyone. Yeah, it, it's very I think it's very cool that she actually has a pretty strong power, but it's not like that makes her. I mean, it, it makes her more interesting because she's she's heroic, so she has to work twice as hard to you know not just like th- throw someone, which she could easily do, right? Like if she could just kill this this biker, like she yeah. could just grab her and like throw her into the ground, and it would be over in one second. But because she's trying to be a hero, it it's it takes so much more effort and attention to kind of do it the way she wants to do it. And I think that's very awesome and interesting as a character. Yeah. She also lets the, the girl get a really sweet hero landing before she flying <laughs> jump kicks her in the face. Right. Yeah. This this actually got me thinking about something. Um, Victoria is like when Victoria hurts people in the story. It's very violent. Like we hear bones crunching, right? Mm-hmm. Like b- broken legs, broken bones, because she hits that, that she hits hard. That's her power. Like she mm-hmm. she breaks people, and it comes off in your reading it almost as like more violent than Taylor, mm-hmm. um, just because of just because of the 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 nature of like crunching bones and, and broken things but of course she's not actually being more violent than taylor was i mean taylor's violence just was a, a little less like upfront and personal a little more detached mm-hmm. so so it reads as harsher even though it, it isn't and i find i found that interesting because i found myself saying like geez victoria like this is really violent and then i had to check myself and be like well i mean comparatively like like breaking some bad guy's leg is way less is way like maybe a little it lasts a little longer but you're not like torturing them with ants or like capsaicin lined bugs in their eyes so it's just it's just it's a different kind of violence yeah yeah i think that's a good way of saying it because i was thinking through like first of all i guess it depends on what era of taylor like are you are you talking about swinging nano knife through a cloud of k-53s okay (laughs) or or 
or what exactly because yeah like the, the the bit where she hits the guy's arm and like his forearm breaks so badly that his hand like flops back and hits his elbow that that's kind of like yeah that that hit me in the in the gut there mm-hmm. um but that was a self-defense uh action so it's a little bit more yeah you your brain kind of parses it differently yeah I, like this whole this whole book parses differently you know than than worm like like worm you're you're kind of reading it as oh this is a superhero supervillain story this is this own this is its own kind of spin-off thing it, it's not really the same animal and so the violence feels different i don't know if that's yeah. coherent but it, well and, and and maybe i mean maybe it is just the perspective of the violence right like victoria will hurt people but doesn't want to mm-hmm. so like she she is more conscious of each crunch and each break mm-hmm. and each painful attack because she sees it as a necessary thing that she probably would not w- wish she doesn't have to do mm-hmm. um whereas on taylor's side this was like well these people deserve this so yeah. Good point yeah so yeah, speaking of that biker that she uh, flying kicked, she compliments the biker for her nice descent, uh, but then Mama takes the woman out before the two can strike up a conversation. Yeah, I, I think this serves really well to remind us once again just how little choice so many of these guys have at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Victoria kicked this biker's ass. It, it feels good. It makes her feel useful. One last bat, one less bad guy to deal with, but they're all just pawns. For the big guy like it's just sad it's like yeah there's there's really no feeling of victory here right even when this cape was fighting her you didn't get the sense that her heart was in it right so victoria then goes to support weld who's fighting a handful of unpowered opponents and not having any real trouble with them but mama makes it clear that surrender is worse than being crushed because she tortures the ones that do weld it appears has closed off his ear canals so he's not vulnerable to mama's voice yeah, so it, chapter 6.1, Victoria was feeling kind of powerless and, and useless and and went out and decided to fly around wrecking Fallen, um, mm-hmm. taking out s- some specific pests and do that. And and she she gets complimented on that and then like defers credit to Imp, like doesn't take credit for it. And, and now she goes out again and plays a supporting role in a couple of other battles. And I, I just find it interesting here, like, so she sees a cape fighting a dog and jumps in and takes out the cape. Um, then she sees a cape and a few civilians fighting weld and, and jumps in and helps take out the cape. I mean, there's no like clear inclination whether this weld battle was tipping against him. Like it, it, it it's not very clear that he needed help here. Right? Mm-hmm. Like in fact, Weld is fighting these people and the dogs are kind of just like circling, waiting, like just like almost as if, hey, he seems like he's got this. But just in case he doesn't, I'm going to jump in. I'm being the dogs. I'm going to jump in and 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 fight these people after him. Mm-hmm. So like it, it just seems like she sees this and jumps in to help in a situation that might not necessarily need her. And and I got thinking like the, the common thread between these two things is the dogs, right? And and that the the closest tie back to that I could see is that she's still kind of untrusting of Rachel's dogs and their ability to not go too far with their level of violence. So she's jumping in trying to de-escalate situations that she's worried will escalate 
beyond um, her control. And that that's all I got from that. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think there might also be notes of this idea that she's kind of caught up in the flow of things. She's just making herself useful wherever she can. Um, there's there's less... I'm not going to say there's no um, internal monologue and strategically thinking things through and weighing you know, options because she always does that. That's pretty core to who she is. But there's definitely a lot more just like, okay, now I'm going to go over there. Now I'm going to go over there. Now I'm going to go over yeah. there. Just just making herself of use um, almost reflexively, which which again is part of this momentum that she's gathering. Yeah, that's true. There There is definitely just um, the first thing I see that I can... I can do something in it. There's, there's mm-hmm. no real planning there. There's no real strategy. Yeah. It's just bad guy, go fly fight. Yeah. So Weld and her rejoin the main group and Victoria receives earplugs from Perian. Then she learns that a dog is missing, which uh, Rachel's very upset about. Victoria finds her very quickly. The dog is preoccupied with a small creepy kid that it has found. <laughs> yeah. And this is like, I think full undersiders toys, uh, warden's cooperation mode now, right? Like yeah. she gets earplugs from Perrion. Like she hears about the dog and goes out to find it um, to help out. And and like we said before, we're, we're taking baby steps in, in Vicky's acceptance of the undersiders. And it feels like, it feels kind of like we're building to a moment here with that. And, and we are, we are, we, we end this chapter on a pretty big, pretty big choice Victoria makes. So yeah. Yeah. Good point. So yeah, Imp and Rachel reach them and Rachel gives her a, a gushing, effusive compliment. Good work. <laughs> yeah, coming from Rachel, that's that's high praise, Matt. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, Rachel is, is great in these chapters. Mm-hmm. So yeah, happy. We, we, we get a few beats of, of an Imp-Rachel conversation, right? That we kind of catch ourselves up on their relationship. They're, they're both giving each other hard times. That's, that's I think, par for the course. But there's some really great beats in here. Like, I'm trying to make him a better dog. Like, I'm trying to make you a better human. Don't be annoying. And this is not an easily frustrated, confused in general by humanity, Rachel. This is someone kind of different. This is someone who's grown a little bit. And I love that. I'm, I'm trying to make you a better human. Yeah. I mean, I basically parsed her compliment to Victoria as like a huge marker of like her thinking like, all right, the the human person has done a good thing. How how would I compliment a dog? And what is an equivalent appropriate way of making a human feel like they did a good thing? Okay, I will say good work. Like, like she still has to work at it, but she, the fact is she is working at it. She's bothering to do it. And that's that's what that's what shows the growth. So Victoria mentions to Chris that they might be moving on to phase two, which uh, we don't know what that is. But the team members can't communicate what it means to the undersiders. Yeah, we all, all we get here is contain, um, which we don't know a lot about. And and I like that there's there's an in world reason for why we can't just communicate this. Like there's Mama Mathers or or the rest of the fallen could be listening in somehow and we don't want to reveal our full plan to them. I like that. But we also kind of like Victoria is within her internal monologue, pretty, um, pretty like non committal or, or, or she doesn't really explain what she's thinking either. Um, it's almost as if like this, this, I can't betray this information verbally has, has fed into her internal monologue as well. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of why I feel like part of this chapter gets a little confusing as we get to the end of it, because like we, we've got so much double speak and we don't get like 
the inside of her head fill in. Yes, that is your pet peeve, Scott. We we remember the Army Master incident. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I'm trying to remember if if this bothered me. I mean, I, I honestly it, it doesn't, but uh, I can see why it would. So yeah, yeah the- I, I acknowledge that this is a ridiculously small <laughs> quibble of mine that is just a thing that I deal with constantly, and I have to be like, I have to, I have to set myself back and be like, is this really a big deal, Scott? And most of the times, the answer is no. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I think, I think this is one of those cases where it's probably, probably not, not egregious because like she's thinking more about how to communicate with people than she's thinking about what the actual plan is. So it's not like the prose is hiding the thoughts from you. She's just not having the thoughts, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. It's not like, I think the, the the worst examples of, of this, um, and I'm not even talking about in these books, just in storytelling in general is when, um, like, the, the the text is going out of its way to hide this information from you. I think you're absolutely right that it's not that Victoria is thinking these things. We're just not party to it. It's just that she's not thinking them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, that is fair. Yeah, I, I agree. So very interesting aside here, Rachel recognizes Chris and she's not at all clear how she says she knows of him. And my first thought, thought and i think some people in the reddit too was that she just recognized him from his body language as a cephalopod um using her superpower of reading body language but i I don't think it's necessarily going to be that clear cut because she kind of even says some things that contradict that and chris then has uh, one of his first non-sarcastic emotional reactions of of being kind of alarmed to learn that they have him on video and that Rachel says she knows him. Yeah, it's a real it's a real strange interaction, isn't it? Rachel like almost seems to blurt out and then kind of walks it back from there. Mm-hmm. It's like I recognize you and then everyone kind of freaks out about it and she says, "Well, no, I I know of you." And and I think you're right that it is not just a it is not just a simple matter of um I recognize you from the tapes the title tale has shown us. I recognize um your that that body language stuff you're talking about i think there's something more going on here because she seems to she seems to react as if the this is the same guy that the tattletale has shown us is new information like she's is he oh okay uh-huh. um it feels like she's reacting to new information mm-hmm. and you're absolutely right that chris is so like 100 percent adamant that she definitely does not recognize him that there's literal no literally no way in which she could recognize him that it makes me think that not only does she, but Chris probably knows exactly where from and he's kind of freaking out at that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely piques our curiosity. I hope we right. figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, I think we're, we're finally starting to get a little, little, little drops of more Chris information. Right. And yeah. I think that, that this shows us that Rachel is going to be connected to part of Chris's backstory, whatever it ends up being. Yeah, I'm loving that constant Chris drip feed. Yep. Speaking of which, as they're walking back, um, you know, Victoria is kind of impressed slash confused that Chris has been affected by Mama Mathers, but he's not melting down about it. He's, he's just kind of functioning. And Chris's explanation is uh, emotion powers don't affect you as much, right? Chris asked. Yeah. Monsters don't get to me. 
So I had this thought here um, that all Chris's forms are, yeah, creepy, monstrous, but almost decoratively, performatively monstrous and, and bizarre. So it's it's like Chris or Chris's power is going out of its way to look ostentatiously monstrous over and above just being kind of an abstract changer power. So Chris or Chris's power goes out of its way to be scary so that monsters can't get to him. Yeah, I, I really, really like this take of yours because I think it is one of the first big cracks into the mystery that is Chris that we can um, we can really get into. And, and I think I think you're absolutely right that there is a performative nature to his transformations. And, and with what we understand about shards and trauma, this absolutely could be the case that the, the boy terrified of monsters becomes a monster to hide from monsters or, mm-hmm. or to to make himself no longer afraid of them. And I, I love that aspect of it. That's that's fascinating. And and I think you've got something there. Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait to learn more. Yeah. So back with the main group, Victoria gathers everyone for a meeting, uh, once again displaying her innate leadership qualities. Phase two is turning this this whole situation into a siege, containing things. Everyone except Rain is on board with this because Rain is worried about the hostages, and he emphasizes that these guys thrive in this kind of situation. Yeah, and I think it's funny because we, we talked in six one about how I really felt like this was a moment of, hey, if we if we just back up here, maybe we'll maybe we'll be okay. But we're gonna go and we're gonna go full force into things already. And I I looked at this as an ominous note, and it seems here that they've they've almost decided to do exactly what they decided not to do at the end of the last chapter. And and I think we'll learn exactly why that is in a second, why that seems to contradict the decision at the end of the, the first chapter. Um, I think it's 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 a cool, clever way of doing things where you're just like, wait a minute, didn't they specifically mm-hmm. decide not to do that? What What's going on here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I, I also really love this, this tiny beat here where Rain is is trying to argue that they should in fact keep pressing the attack. And he says, they were the fastest growing settlement to start from scratch. They're good at kicking ass when they have nothing going for them. And, and there's, you know, first of all, he, he starts to say we, (laughs) and, and also he, you can't help but get a, a sense of like almost pride in saying this, like, yes, he hates them basically, but he's, he 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 was on their team you know he he's like hey these guys are these guys are tough you don't want to you don't want to go against them i don't know I, I just i thought this was great characterization and a great moment no i i do too and i think i i don't specifically think this says anything about rain's confused allegiances or anything but it is it is a fun way to reinforce the the, the long road of of breaking your identity as a member of a group and how it takes like continual conscious effort to do so because it is very easy to fall back on on a we statement like this especially when you're referring to the past because technically if he said we were the fastest growing settlement to start from the scratch that would have been a true statement when he was part of the settlement they were the fastest one to start from scratch but the fact that he takes extra time here to to halt that almost natural type of, of phrasing and correct it to something that makes it clear once again that I don't consider myself part of this group anymore, I think is is a, a big character moment for him. Yeah. So Victoria tries to address Rain here, and Capricorn almost cuts her off, perhaps to argue, but she gives him she gives him back that slow down signal that, that he gave her uh many, many chapters ago. 
So he changes whatever he was going to say and backs Victoria up. She asks Rain to accommodate them, which is not actually an argument, uh, but it does get him to back down. Yeah, we we accommodated you. Now accommodate us. This is, I think, one of the most confusing moments going through the first time because this feels so non-Victoria in this moment. Like, this this doesn't feel like a, a tact she would take, right? It's like, mm-hmm. we did this for you, do this for us now. Um, and that even might be partially true, but I just don't, I just don't see it as a thing Victoria would say. And, and if you learn why in a bit, right, we learn mm-hmm. that this is all an act she's putting on, but it, on your first read through, I, I think, I think that's great. I think it's great to kind of demonstrate through the writing, um, and through the reader's assumed understanding of the character at this point that we can build these moments where it's, they seem like they're acting so against the way they normally would that it y- you get confused and then you get to reveal later um, right. why exactly that is. And that's that's when I push and pull between my my annoyance with a character not revealing their plans in their monologue and my joy of a, a, a well-timed reveal. Um, and that's like the, the push and pull for me is like I don't like one, but I, I really like the other. So right. um, I, I never know. I never know what to what to do with it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because when I say that it's not actually an argument, what I what I guess I really mean is exactly like you said, Victoria would never try to like power play someone in a situation like this, which is what saying like we we did this for you. Now it's your turn. Like that's that's not that's not a rational um, thing that would motivate a human being. And and so Victoria would just not go there because she, she, she doesn't she doesn't she doesn't behave that way. Also, she she makes the argument here that they are in this war, they are in this battle primarily because of him, mm-hmm. and that's not exactly true either, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, like the yes, part of their overall plan was dealing with with Rain and the people that are after him, but they they came into this thing to fight against Hollow Point, and Hollow Point got pulled into this thing um, with the Fallen and. Like it, it, it comes off as as a hollow argument because I think it it is. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So yeah, one as we've been hinting at, once everyone starts to disperse, though, we see that this was all a ruse. Victoria grabs Rain's wrist and traces out Aaron's name, which is enough for him to get the message. It isn't over. They're not pulling out. Yeah, we just get just enough information here to know what Victoria's plan seems to be. She starts writing Aaron now. Um, but he pulls away before she finishes it. But I guess the, the plan here is Rain is going to sneak in and get Aaron out of there. Um, and and then then like and they're just they're just feeding the fallen incorrect information so they mm-hmm. they can keep them on their toes. Right. Um, this is I, I I think, you know, the the reason why this this chapter can be and I've used the word confusing a lot. And I don't mean I don't mean that in a a bad way, you know, like, I mean, like there's, there's a certain amount of confusion that you want to build in the reader, especially when you have Victoria, like performing publicly. Um, there's, there's a lot of what, a lot of what is being said by our, our main character throughout this chapter is part of this ruse is, is to specifically throw people off or, or provide as little information as possible. And I, I like that a lot. I, I think that's, that's fun to do. And it, it kind of pulls you through the action. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely like the first time I was reading this, it was fun to very attentively and with great engagement follow this thread of, okay, what's really going on? Let's try to put this puzzle together. Yeah. 
So next she calls Luxi, and while Kinsey fills her in on what's been going on in the surrounding environs, Victoria texts Kinsey, asking her to find Tattletail, coordinate with us and the Undersiders. Yeah, and she describes it as like the third least likely text she ever thought she would send. Mm -hmm. uh, find Tattletail. And like we've been alluding to during this entire conversation, it feels like we've been building to this moment throughout mm -hmm. the chapter so far and, and even throughout 6.1 as uh, situations and, and Victoria's greater understanding has pushed her towards this 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 willingness to reach out to a person that she strongly dislikes. And and I, I want I want us to make sure that we're clear how big of a deal this is for her, mm -hmm. because like on Victoria's shit list, there are probably three people at the top of it. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, number one with a bullet is Amy, um, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, number two is probably her mom. Uh, and I think number three probably tattletale like mm -hmm. she 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 blames tattletale for a lot of what happened um not unfairly i don't think um and yeah well, sorry go ahead I, i'm just laughing because she does blame tattletale for a lot of stuff that was actually taylor but that's that's, that's that is true it's kind of beside the point here yeah yeah um but 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 she like a lot of what happened to her and her trauma is is wrapped up in these three people so I think it is a, a big step for her to even indirectly reach out to one of the big three. And um, I think we need to follow this and, and see see where it leads. And it it, it doesn't mean like this is such a, a baby step, right? It doesn't mean that Victoria uh, has issues with Tattletale or over. It doesn't mean that she's abandoned this idea of I refuse to forgive and forget um, that we had established in uh, the, the very last chapter of the pre uh, the the prologue but it is a i think it is a big deal that this step is made mm -hmm. yeah no i think i think this this denotes progress in her ability to face her trauma yeah absolutely so yeah moving right on into 6.3 and we still aren't sure exactly what the plan is um although i think we're starting to put it together but uh it, because you know it's, it still looks from the outside like they're retreating yeah. Well, and I think the, the weird thing about this whole plan is that I think phase two is really a thing that they are going to do. Like there is I think there is still going to be a retreat and siege portion of this plan. There's just also like a bunch of secret plans along with the plan mm -hmm. <laughs> that involve Kenzie and Rain as well. So uh, they they are apparently going to go siege mode in some way. Mm -hmm. But um, there's other stuff going on as well. Yeah. So they make their way further from the trees with the ranged capes, including rain, providing suppressing fire and Capricorn and Vista team up to make barrier walls faster and more effectively. Victoria notices now 17 year old Vista and Capricorn are getting along a little too well. Oh, oh, Vista, have we have we got some news for you? Uh, this is actually, Matt, the, the second beat of this. We saw uh, her whispering in his ear earlier last chapter and Victoria made a note of it. Um, and then she sees this again and makes another note of it that was like, yeah, I definitely, I definitely need to bring this up with her later. Um, maybe we'll see a third beat of this. I don't, I don't know why I'm being coy. We will, we will see a th yeah. third beat of this later this chapter. Yeah. Fairly soon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so Kenzie calls in and updates them on her big win. She, she relays how, she used projections of heroes and police officers and vans to convince a group of fallen to surrender. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Like you're, you're kind of like, good job, Kenzie. Um, 
but but it is Chris here that challenges her on this, right? Mm-hmm. Chris uh, says, "Oh, you you captured and kept images of police officers' vans and some heroes," and um, so Chris is kind of attacking her here, um, which is which is very standard, Chris. But um, it is interesting what Victoria says in response to this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she says, uh, or what Kenzie says, you mean? Yeah, well, well yeah. What he, okay. So he says, says the girl who could probably make a camera that steals literal souls if she tried. Uh-huh. Totally innocent thing to ask, and they have no idea at all. Mm-hmm. And her response is, could not. Souls are for God to handle, numbnuts. Yeah. And that's a interesting wrinkle, isn't it? Kenzie is a, a bit religious, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's that's cool that we're introducing that element or that we're at least uh, uh, putting it forward because um, th- this story so far definitely has had... A lot of things to say about religion. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead there? <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I, this was a good, I've been, I've been thinking about religion as it connects to this book for a while now. And I was like waiting for a moment to, to talk about this, like a natural, a mm-hmm. natural entrance to this conversation. And I think this serves as it because religion was not focused on very much in worm. Um, there were a few beats of it. I mean, we had the fallen, but the fallen to me, and maybe I just completely missed something. were always constructed as worshiping end bringers mm-hmm. and, and the, the bastardized version of Christianity that at least this sect of the fallen practices was not really focused on in the short amount of time we saw them. But here in, in, in ward, we see them and yes, they still worship the end bringers in some kind of way or the ones that are still alive rather. Um, but but they also are employing this this sect of Christianity um, that has kind of been been bastardized and interpreted to fit their view on the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but but this is we're, we're focusing on that. We're looking at it. And then we also have the whole Earth Sea, which is this Abrahamic, completely religious society that our world is seemingly destined to get into a, a conflict with. Um, so, so there's an opportunity there to explore, um, explore the religious aspect of that group and, and what that does and what that means. And then, and then we have Kenzie offhandedly throwing this mention of, of souls and God here. And there's, there's really not enough to conclude yet on, um, what religion Kenzie is, what, what is, what, what, type of faith does she belong to does she even really believe in this stuff or was she just like throwing out some things in her bickering with chris but it is certainly something that i i i think is not something we should ignore yeah yeah i mean because i don't think i don't think the story itself is necessarily (laughs) anti-religious no it's it's just uh, i mean it's uh showing a lot of the potential failure modes in, in terms of like how you know, basically these horrible people have co-opted Christianity and turned it into a death cult based around the Endbringers. Like that's kind of, if anything, they've basically insinuated that the Endbringers are like part of a biblical judgment against the world. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, I think that's kind of the slant they're taking now, but fundamentally it's, that's, that's less about religion and more about powerful people trying to, um, try to dominate others using cult tools basically. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, to, to have this, I I, I do wonder if this is going to be pursued beyond just, you know, this, this little beat mentioning that Kenzie, Kenzie is, is religious or, or maybe it might be. I mean, 
I, I think the most interesting part of this to me is if we take this um, seemingly higher focus on religion in this story and put it in contrast with the idea of the cape afterlife that we briefly talked about last week, the idea the the idea of what happens when you die is is kind of one of the fundamental questions that a religion or religious studies attempts to answer, right? I mean, that's like one of the central questions that we have as human beings. And and, and, and I don't think it's coincidence that in this story that has seemingly decided to uh, explore religion in a little bit more focus so far, at least, um, is also talking about these questions of of what what life after death for a cape looks like. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's going to be interesting to kind of compare and contrast um, these ongoing religion spirituality discussions through uh, the characters that our our heroes are coming up against and how they compare and contrast to how shards work and and what a what what the cycle of shards looks like now and 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 how are these things similar and how are they different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I do. I do think this is a theme. Like, so I think it's going to persist and be be played with as we go forward. So I think it's good that we're putting a pin in it for now to, yeah. to pay attention to it. Pin put. All right. So kind of after this little bit of bickering, Chris offhandedly mentions that he was also shot when he was dark introspection. Yeah, and I wonder, Matt. Um, Chris is like Chris is always kind of sarcastic and mean to people, especially to Kenzie. But it seems particularly barbed right now, mm-hmm. and I wonder if he feels a little jealous of of her in this moment. Like she's telling the story about how she like single handedly took down all these people and she had this great success, and he's just like, yeah, oh, well, let me just find the bad in that. Let me just mm-hmm. find the bad in what you just did. And then, oh, yeah, by the way, I got shot, too. Yeah, Victoria got shot, but I got shot, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, is he is he wishing, like, w- one thing we do definitively know about him is he has this drive to be involved, to be on the front line, to be in the thick of it. And maybe he's a little upset that that while he has been in the thick of some of it, he hasn't had quite the impact on the fight that he was hoping. And maybe that's why this kind of barbed, um, sarcastic Chris that we've seen before is coming out in these moments. Yeah, that's really interesting. It, it's, it's like, uh, he, it, it's not dissimilar from his n- normal way of interacting with people, but it does seem particularly, uh, uh, aggressively unwilling to give anyone else their, moment in the spotlight right now so yeah Yeah. i I think it could very well be jealousy that he's sort of covering with his sarcasm Mm -hmm. so yeah so now victoria warns kinsey that people will be coming her way and advises her to create some decoys um that look like the groups of fallen prisoners to avoid uh letting the fallen retrieve them or to dissuade the fallen from shooting into the crowds basically yeah and kenzie hangs up the phone to go do this she needs to focus. She can't talk. Mm-hmm. Kenzie. Yeah, I know. So so first, um, Chris comments on this and says, is the world ending again? Or did she really <laughs> just say that? And my response was, come on, Chris, you're the closest thing we have right now to a genre savvy, self-aware background character. Don't say things like this. Yeah, look what happened to Alec last time he started predicting things. I know. I know. It's terrible. So... Um, yeah, as you, as you insinuated, Kenzie is probably having a mental breakdown right now, trying to do two weeks of tinkering in five minutes. I know you, you can't help but have 
all the warnings by her former teammates in the back of your head as you read this, right? Like, like how she will, you give her an important assignment and she will try to do the thing absolutely perfectly um, and, and be terrified of disappointing you and, and devastated if she feels she let you down, how she'd agree to do anything, even if it's not even possible for us, like the, the portal system she said she was going to work on. Um, and I think the text wants you to feel concerned for her in this, that not only through Chris's like extreme surprise and using phrases like world ending word use, but through Victoria herself, Sveta writes the moment off as Kenzie being excited to help. And that's very Sveta because she's always sees the good and optimism in people. I love that about her. But Victoria thinks she was, I suspected, excited rather. Um, but I wasn't sure I heard excitement exactly hard to pin down. Um, and I think it, 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 I don't want to I don't want to conclude on this, but it, it does feel like there's a bit of uh, exasperation in her. Like she's she is very excited to get to do this opportunity, but possibly has no idea how she could actually do it and is is like you said probably suffering from a complete mental breakdown yeah i mean i basically interpret it as like the kind of excitement that comes with a lot of tension and and, and anxiety like like I, i i kind of mentally connect that to times when someone has been like uh hey matt can you can you code this thing and i like mentally realize that that's like a month of work and and then i'm like yeah yeah sure sure um and and there's yeah that that's that was that was the brain space that i was mapping that onto yeah um and then trying to do it as quickly as possible and kind of knowing how difficult it was yeah but it's from this point on that i realized we are um building to something with kenzie and the end of this chapter did not support disappoint in that regard either Mm -hmm. absolutely so so meanwhile uh the uh uh Capricorn um is trying something. Tristan swaps out with Byron uh in order to basically try to make their work go faster, but it doesn't work and instead soaks a number of bystander heroes. Narwhal is super annoyed about this uh despite being an aquatic mammal. Um but, Bryf- but Byron briefly swaps back in to explain what went wrong from his end. He says there was a resistance to swapping back and he had to push. And this implies that whatever they did made it harder for Tristan to come back. And uh, this inevitably reminds me of the um, details of the deal that appeared to be in place regarding the two brothers and their timeshare arrangement. Yeah, I think this has troublesome setup written all over it. Mm -hmm. They just accidentally stumbled on a method that could potentially make it harder for them to switch out. And one could certainly use that information and explore it further. I really I really like how this is done, though, because this is kind of placed inside that Vista Loves Capricorn 3-beat that we've seen in these two chapters. So it's really easy to kind of just scan over it without really thinking about it too hard. But yeah, I mean, this this has implications. We know uh, via the, the prologues that there is some sort of um, hit out with... I think Byron, right? Like I, I need to go back and read that prologue. Actually, that, that Byron took a hit out, presumably on himself or another version of himself. Yeah. Um, and, and we know that. So there's there's an, an uneasy truce between these two characters, and this has this has a a real potential of upsetting that uneasy truce. It's a new element that's been brought into their understanding of their power and the switching and all that, and it, it it's a recipe for for some disaster. 
yeah, we don't know how the switching works. We don't know if the person who is under the surface has to, you know, if, if they can come out when they want to come out or if the person who is out has to, you know, open the door for them or what exactly. But anything that messes with that makes me very nervous. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, yeah, so at this point, uh, Narwhal's angry, but Victoria stands up to Narwhal on Capricorn's behalf. Narwhal caps off the harangue by ordering them to cut the small talk, uh, the complex intercape interactions, as she calls it. Yeah, and, and this is, we're getting into the end of our three beat that we hinted towards now. I, I like that we kind of show that Narwhal noticed this stuff too, so we know it's just not paranoid Vicky that's been picking up on this thing between the two of them. Someone else noticed it, and it kind of vindicates uh, her awareness of this situation. Yeah, so Victoria now takes Vista aside and gives her a minor pep talk about how it's not so bad before ripping out her heart by telling her that she has a thing for unattainable guys in heavy armor. She's able to communicate that Capricorn is a K-70 and thus can't really date, but uh, she doesn't tell Vista uh, that, uh, that Tristan is gay. Yeah, I really, really like this moment. Um, because So Victoria and Vista's friendship has been something that Vicky has referenced a few times throughout the book so far. Um, but we've never really gotten the chance to to see it play out. And this whole friendship, this whole this whole conversation rather, has this very uh, familial, close friend feel to it between the two of them, right? There's 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 a care and honesty with with which Victoria talks that is seemingly reserved for someone that she, she feels very close to. And I think it, it reinforces this feeling of between these two characters. And I, I like their interactions a lot. Um, and I like Vista a lot because <laughs> when she tells her that she has a thing for unattainable guys in heavy armor, Vista's reaction is dead son of a cunt. I might actually, um, this is wonderful. And, and I think, again, we see Victoria's willingness to, to be brunt and, and, and honest with her, but we also see Vista's willingness to agree and not to challenge Vicky's assessment. She, she tells her this thing and her reaction is like, yeah, OK, you you actually you're right there. Um, and I think that sh- that, again, reinforces the trust and, and the, the friendship between these two characters. Yeah, yeah, it's it's nice to see um, Vista still trying and yeah. not being crushed by having everyone she knows dead. Yeah. Um, so that's that's also a positive thing to see. I also appreciate that Victoria did not reveal Tristan's sexuality to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she kind of decides to leave that up to him. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm assuming him, like she says something like, I, I'm assuming he'll tell you pretty soon because he thinks you're really cool. Yeah. Um, so he'll probably reveal that to you. That's, that's, it's definitely good to not take away, take that away from someone else to not, to decide when when you want to declare that rather than let that person. I think that's a cool moment. Yeah. So hey, is it is it shipping if I really want to see um um Vista and and Tristan be friends? I don't I just want them to have a good friendship. I just want to see them be friends. Everyone tells me different <laughs> definitions of the word shipping and I'm going to go with yes then. So sure, sure, it's good shipping. I don't Let, care. Let's call it friend shipping. <laughs> Okay. I'm friend shipping Vista and Tristan. There we go. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Kinsey now calls her report that one of her cameras is freaking out. Uh, ghosts in the machine, she says, uh, because of where the camera is pointing. And this means that Mama is encroaching on Gilpatrick's patrol squad. 
So I know Victoria says, don't look into the code. And that Kenzie says she wasn't looking into the code. But Matt, do you like, I don't know. I'm very afraid of this whole situation for Kenzie. Like we know, we know that mama's power is vast and we know that Kenzie is infinitely curious. So I'm like, really like, oh God, she's going to, she's going to look at the code. Something's going to happen here. And I don't even know if the end of the arc, like, dissuades me from that fear or the end of the chapter rather dissuades me from that fear i just i I don't know i don't know i i will say i wasn't worried about that um your your worry does sound plausible to me but it's not something that occurred to me while i was reading uh we'll see okay see i'm just being paranoid that's that's what this book wants you to do so victoria communicates to rain using hand gestures that he should um do something other than situate himself to the south and lie low. Yeah, she she I guess like wants him to fake like he's really injured. So everyone thinks he's really injured and then hang back and then sneak around and get Aaron. Um, I it, it, It's great that this isn't exactly totally clear, but it is there. Like she tells him to cover us to the south and then we see rain jog northward. So like we, we see very clearly that he's not doing mm-hmm. what she told him to do. And we get that interesting slash um, hand gesture that she makes. So this is this is activating plan. Rescue Aaron. Yeah. And in over here in the Matt can't read corner, I, I did not notice rain jog northward, which which would have very clearly <laughs> suggested what what was communicated there. Uh, yeah. I also don't speaking of people reading things differently. I don't keep like a spatial map of where characters are in my, in my brain. Um, I also don't keep a spatial map of real life places in the real world in my brain. Uh, so that mm-hmm. might explain why that is. It could be. Yeah. But anyway, so Victoria then heads off on her own to back up Gilpatrick. Kinsey reveals on the phone that she's seen how Ashley is behaving and inferred that someone died. Kinsey takes the news hard, but is able to keep it together and keep working. Yeah, Kenzie's able to keep it together and keep working. The person that is notorious for not letting other people know how bad they're doing uh-huh. is able to just just pull it all together. Um, so my Scott is seriously worried for Kenzie Bar is now at like ninety eight percent because we have like all these things where we're giving this huge important task, the secret mission. Now she's dealing with the fallout of the Ashley situation. She's got all this pressing pressure riding on her. She's then she's disappointed in people and she's terrified of disappointing people. The Kenzie alarm bells are ringing and I'm freaking out. Yeah. This, this may not be the best thing for her. They have a point there. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. We'll, We'll have to see what state she's in when this all falls out. So now Victoria has flown to where Gilpatrick is, and she fills him in on what Mama's power is. Everybody dons their standard issue Master Stranger cap and hearing protection ensemble, and Ashley comes out of the van but hangs back. And here we have this cool moment. Gilpatrick looked like an entirely different man with the tension in his face and neck. He ceased being the tough but fair teacher and had become the soldier who had fought real as shit monsters. Yeah, I love... I love this because it's kind of it's 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 super significant. I think we met this guy back in arc one and we saw the type of teacher and person he was. And now we're here in arc six and we're seeing he's become a completely different person. He's had to put aside that tough but fair teacher and become the soldier. And it reminds us of of what 
this world and what these fights and what these things can do to people. And it also reminds us of the fact that some of the soldiers that are with him are probably just kids. Mm -hmm. Like, like, like we don't, we don't get specific confirmation of that, but um, maybe kids just a couple years removed from the kids we met at the very beginning of, of arc one that Victoria was talking to. Like these are people that have just gone down that line of training just a bit further um, and have, and have been given guns. But like these people are very young and are in this terrible situation. Yeah. I, I think I may be filling in, you know, cached clues, but yeah, I definitely had the impression that a lot of these people were, were very young. This is, this is kind of his patrol block uh, folks. So yeah, that's, yeah. it's, it's not a great situation to have, um, these guys have to be in combat. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, so now a fallen comes out, um, which according to our discord, he matches the description of a mid-level boss. Uh, and he, he speaks for mama. He tells her that Veilfor needs medical attention and because he's apparently dying from having his face caved in, but that he's being kept in a slow field by the speedrunners. Mama only wants to be left alone, uh, or so she says. The, the Crowleys are the real bad guys here. Um, you know, it's totally not her fault. She's she's a good guy, actually. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Very convincing. Yeah, right. Uh, to to emphasize the point that she's a good guy, Aaron, the hostage, comes out, um, and uh, and the man offers to trade her for Rain. He applies pressure on Victoria, repeating TikTok, trying to mess with her. Um, he says, TikTok, the bearded man said, using tactics to make us feel rushed to make a decision. My mom had employed that on me once as something illustrative. I'd been too young to appreciate the lesson at the time. I'd mostly been pissed off. Yeah, so I'm, we're, we're going to get into the whole negotiation thing in a bit, but I wanted to talk about this Carol moment here because this is another one of those beats where we see carol do some like targeted shitty things to victoria in order to teach her something and technically she has right like victoria is now employing the lesson she learned from her mother in this negotiation and not being swayed into a time limit and the more we learn about carol like pre-hospital incident the more I think of her as like an obsessive coach mom or something, or like one of Mm -hmm. those crazy dance moms who like all Victoria ever really wanted out of her was love and affection. But all she got was like hard life lessons and, and training Mm -hmm. to be a a superhero. And that, that is a a very interesting uh, way of looking at Carol that I hadn't necessarily connected before. Um, But we keep seeing more of it. It's like, the, the memories Victoria has of her mother usually revolve around her cape life and, and lessons that she's taught her and less around. I hugged you cause I love you. Yeah. No, the, the coach mom thing is like a perfect handle for kind of an amorphous mental blob that I've been formulating on, on like, yeah, this, this, she seems so pushy and geared toward like success and being this thing. Uh, and of course this thing is the thing that she herself is cape yeah um and yeah it's it's a coach mom i think that's the perfect descriptor cool coach mom carol that's right coach mom carol so fairly quickly though the offer to trade rain for aaron expires 
Rain has apparently been captured as he snuck around behind Mama's group, and Sveta is cornered, uh, which my first reaction was uh, bad news for whoever has cornered her, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk about this for a little bit, because we're, we're thrown into this this negotiation thing, and Victoria is basically forced up against a wall where it's like, deal with us, negotiate with us. And I think it's so interesting, because throughout all of this battle, all of this war so far, we've seen Victoria again and again have to like check her assumptions and check her understanding of the world and of the black and white good and bad nature of of things to the point where you might for a second think, will Victoria negotiate with them? Like she she's had such a completely like mind opening experience about um about right and wrong and and the gray the grayness of morality sometimes maybe maybe she'll like actually like consider this but of course of course she doesn't really like i think the, the interesting part about this is the negotiation ends right mm-hmm. i mean like she 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 does not she does she's not willing to negotiate with them and the time runs out as they say and I think it goes to show that like there there's good and bad with being kind of rigid and stuck and, and having this rigid sense of right and wrong and morality. There's good in that um, you you aren't willing to deal with these people. You aren't willing to negotiate these people. You aren't willing to meet these people in any kind of 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 uh, compromise. There there can be bad of that too. There can be negative consequences to that as well. But in this, I think we're seeing the, the best the the best part of Victoria's um, rigid. I'm going to stand here and and refuse to move, refuse to relent to you, uh, heroness. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think definitely like if you if you are unwilling to accept anything other than unconditional surrender, and your opponent is unwilling to do that then you are at an impasse where all you can really do is just murder them. And that's not a good place to be. So yeah, I agree that being unwilling to being just completely unwilling to compromise is not a good idea. But in this particular case, it's, it's a hostage exchange that seems to be quite advantageous for the bad guys. So yeah, her, her standing firm, I think is a good idea. Yeah. And the thing that I really like about this is this whole, uh, scene is broken up by Kenzie's, introduction into it but i like that wildbo kind of lets the the negotiation portion of it conclude before that mm-hmm. like i think it would be a very easy dodge to like like to, to set a victoria where she has the situation she has this choice to make and she doesn't know what should i do i don't know if it's the right thing or not and then like be saved by kenzie's introduction but that's not what the story does. The story kind of lets that beat conclude. Like the negotiations are over. Like you refuse to negotiate. Victoria made her choice. She, she basically was not willing to go down that route. And then the, then uh, the deus ex Kenzie jumps in Mm -hmm. and like, I think that's a great way of doing it because it it doesn't give our character an out and it doesn't avoid decision-making. It just, is another it's another event that that stacks on to the decision that Victoria just made. Yeah, I agree. That's some very clean plotting there. So yeah, speaking of all of all that, uh, uh, the offer expires, so they're basically just gonna shoot Aaron, I guess. So Aaron starts running. Victoria streaks in to provide cover for her as she flees, just as two objects plummet from the sky. One nailing the nearest gunman, one beating Mama Mathers in the dome. 
Yeah, so Kenzie's doing doing pretty well. Yeah, clutch, absolutely clutch. Well, that I mean, and that and that is, I think, the most interesting thing about this is, I think that the chapter has been building to this moment where we're like, oh God, Kenzie might not be handling this well. Kenzie might not be doing well, and we have this moment where she basically comes in and saves them. She takes out the gunner, and then she takes out Mama, and but we don't. We, we conclude the chapter before getting any kind of hint as to what Kenzie's mindset is in this. Did she do this? Um, was this a smart, like tactical thing she decided to do? Or was it just like desperation, Kenzie losing her mind, freaking out um, and acts rashly kind of, of, of decision. We don't get to see that yet. Yeah. I, I mean, basically my mind went to like checking off the box next to yet another uh, misfit toys name for having attacked someone so so aggressively that, that they might be dead uh, that yeah. was my kind of first first thought right that's the other thing is we don't know um i mean M- mama got hit right on the head right so she could be done yeah we don't know about this other guy i think i think with the other guy it just hit the weapon right yeah so presumably the fallen guy is okay yeah but yeah it's so it's really really violent yeah something metal of, of any real weight falls out of the sky on your head, you're not going to be doing too well. Uh, nope. And with that, uh, the fallen attack as a berserk mass. Yeah. Actions have consequences, even though, yay, we've taken out mama. Oh no, that means, that means everyone's mad at us now. Yeah. Um, and yeah. we have to, and we have to leave it there. Yeah. We have to, we, in, in the middle of this, uh, tense action, we have to leave it there. Um, so, so yeah, that wraps up um, chapter three of arc six pitch, and uh, we can do a little bit of name game. We we, we met those two, um, those two fallen capes, um, Bamet and Koranzan. Um, I I I think that Bamet is like a a version of Bahamet, which is a which is like another demonic entity. Um, so the fallen are just like Final Fantasy characters. Then I mean that's just what we're doing. Yeah, I mean it, it's it it certainly seems <laughs> like the people who made Final Fantasy may may have looked at the same resources that the fallen <laughs> did when when they were uh, coming up with their names. Yeah, I mean Maybe it's not just... it's not surprising to us that they would be doing this at this point. Yeah. No, not at all. I mean I, I joke, but obviously these are are fairly well known. Um, like demons and lore mm-hmm. and stuff yeah. like that. So I, I feel it, like it, it makes sense. I feel like once we know like all of, or, or at least like a, a more of the fallen names, I kind of want to go over all of them and see if there's more systematic of a pattern that I can pick out. Kind of like we did with the name of all the dragon suits um, a long time ago. Uh, yeah. Where that'd we be fun to do. kind of, kind of, realized how intricate the naming scheme was for dragon suits actually in, in a way that i hadn't that, that hadn't occurred to me um yeah so we'll, some someone remind us to do that in a month <laughs> all right we'll put a guys remind us to do that pin in that and we'll come back to it all right so as for the discussion question for next week i think yet again i i think we wanted to focus on more on like the writing and the craft rather than like uh you know in story stuff so the question is pick a character that you're interested in and talk about something about that character that you want to talk about we you can talk about the wants versus needs dichotomy of how that character is crafted you can talk about 
that character's trauma and how it motivates them. You can talk about their personality. You can talk about the way they speak. You can talk about their appearance. Really just anything from a character design and characterization point of view. I, I would love yeah. to have a conversation about that. Yeah, absolutely. And any anyone goes. Anyone. Yeah. Anyone you want. That's right. Within within the story, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, that's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this now, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at mordinaflopflipim. And uh, if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all of our podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This Friday is our book club live stream of The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein. Heinlein. If you like this podcast, we really think you'll enjoy the book book club. So consider subscribing to our YouTube channel so you can be notified of when that live stream discussion goes live. It's a youtube.com slash dailyplanetfilms. That's right, Scott. And if you like any of these shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting for the fan art contest, uh, Q&A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions, and our excellent Discord chat. Special thanks to new Planeteers Demo and Bogdan at the $1 level and Kryptonian Bobby, who upgraded to the $20 level. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, thanks. We really, really appreciate it. Always, always. That's right. And as, as always, make sure you go over to Wildo's Patreon and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it. And if you can't afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by heading on over to iTunes and leaving us a rating and a review. You can be like Samodi Semido 3 who gives us five stars and says, Obviously, Taylor is perfect in every way and did nothing wrong ever. But it's interesting to hear some different perspectives on that. Definitely worth listening to. Obviously, Taylor is perfect. Yeah, I, I don't think we've ever said any differently. No, I don't know. Yeah, what do you, I don't understand this. Like, yeah, hmm. that was our, that was our clear, clear uh, target throughout this whole yeah. thing. What an odd takeaway. Well, anyway, that's it for the show this week. Next week, we'll find out what the hell happens now on part two of arc six of We've Got Ward. Bye bye. Bye bye.